0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. I'd like to wish all of the listeners a blessed new year. This is our first show of the year. We had a a lot of really interesting shows last year, I thought. We talked to a couple of dozen authors, uh, from Andrew Lawton on his book on the Freedom Convoy, to Dennis Prager on his book on Deuteronomy, to Andrew Clavin with his book on poetry and romanticism and the Christian message. And then, of course, we talked to a lot of different journalists and pro-life activists People who are working on the parental rights front, people who are fighting abortion, both in the courts and on the streets. We talk to people who are fighting radical sex education in schools. We spend a lot of time talking to people who are giving all of their time to helping parents porn-proof their home. We've really tried on this show, despite the wild variety in guests and the wild variety of the topics that we've covered, to provide a helpful snapshot of of the culture to talk to experts and authors and journalists and a lot of times although I hope that those who find a particular podcast very interesting are encouraged to go out and buy the book and I've gotten messages from a lot of you saying that is the case I also want the podcast to function as a way for those of you who don't have time to read 200, 300, or even 150-page books all the time, Uh, don't want to process the most difficult new research on complex social issues, to be able to listen to a 30-minute show, an hour-long show, and, and derive all of the really helpful information from that. So today I actually am not going to have on a guest. I just kind of want to take a look at where we are at the beginning of 2022, I want to start by emphasizing what we emphasized in our last show when we talked to Dr. John Siegel of Texas Right to Life. Because the thing about the pro life and pro family movement is that in, in a Western culture that is slowly imploding on itself, it's very easy to forget to take time to be extremely grateful for the blessings that we have been given and the ways in which our work has been rewarded. And so I want to start by saying that this is the first year that we are starting since 1974 In which Roe v. Wade is not the law of the land in the United States of America. And what's interesting is there was a lot of discussion in the American pro-life movement about how this was going to affect the March for Life, which is always on January the 20th. And the reason the U.S. March for Life in Washington, D.C. and other marches around the country have traditionally been on or around that date is, of course, because that is when Roe v. Wade was passed down. And there was some suggestion that that, uh, the March for Life be moved to June 24, which uh, is, of course, the date of the Dobbs decision. And uh, for those of you who have ever frozen nearly solid at the March for Life in the U.S., I've always found the sheer numbers of people who show up at the American March for Life particularly impressive because of how extraordinarily cold it usually is in January. But you get hundreds of thousands of people showing up despite that. Many speakers coming out bundled up, uh, you know, like Eskimos. And No, they are going to, I believe, have the march at the end of January once again. It will be very interesting to see what the first post-row March for Life is. Of course, the battle has already uh, continued in multiple states. And of course, 2022 is going to be a very important year as both the abortion movement and the pro-life movement begin to lay the groundwork. And so I want to go over a couple of things with you just to start the year off. And one of the things that I want to take a look at briefly is just... A cautionary note to those who are looking at emerging movements and thinking, "Oh, we can, we can really win," because I, I think there are some issues where winning and where real victories are genuinely possible. And I think the the pro life fight is certainly like that. Uh, here in Canada, I don't think it's realistic to expect we would get a, a law, a banning or even restricting abortion. In the near term, possibly not in the long term. But every time we see somebody change their mind, every time we see somebody cancel their abortion, which we see happen very frequently, this victory is a total victory. It's the victory in which somebody who was going to be killed and tossed out in a dumpster in pieces is now alive. And so there are issues in which we can do tremendous things, things that are so impactful, it's hard to fully recognize the sheer impact of saving 5, 10, 15, 20, 100 babies uh, from being dismembered, decapitated, and disemboweled by an abortionist, right? It's why there's the famous Jewish saying, he who saves one life saves the world entire. But there are other issues that I think it's important for us, A, to fight on, but B, to be realistic about the direction the overall culture uh, is is heading in. I've seen a lot of very encouraging think pieces Over the last year and a half, two years, kind of declaring that wokeism has now peaked and that the progressive vandals demolishing Western civilization are on the run. I think we saw with the U.S. midterm elections uh, that that's obviously not the case. Uh, Here in Canada, of course, Justin Trudeau in two consecutive elections has gotten fewer votes uh, than the the Conservative Party leader at the same time, despite the radical radical social progressive agenda he has implemented, has faced very little public backlash for that agenda and so although People might be be a bit more reticent to say that the woke agenda is on the run. The reason I think it's so important for us to be clear-eyed and realistic is to recognize that the way forward is going to be very much about building what what are referred to as thick communities, about being clear-eyed about the situation for Canadian churches and for American churches, to be clear-eyed about what we have to do in our families and in our broader communities, and to recognize that what we are talking about is an intergenerational fight and that we are entering the post-Christian age and we're in kind of this pregnant widow moment where we don't know we don't know what comes next but what we do know by all of the data is that we are in the post-Christian age. Is this the pre-Christian age? Is it, Will another religious revival turn Western civilization back to Christianity? That, of course, is beyond the ability of anybody to you know forecast, to research, or to prophesy. But we do have to recognize right now that based on all numbers in Canada, a mere 11% of people attend any form of religious service with any form of regularity, which means 89% of the population does not do that. Uh, in the United States, uh, you know, more more people who self-identify as Catholic um, actually support homosexuality than mainline Protestants. And in mainline Protestantism, of course, most of the moral ills that have afflicted Western civilization since the sexual revolution have long been accepted. If you take the number of people who identify as evangelical, that number is, of course in the tens of millions however when you actually interrogate those evangelicals and ask them what they believe ask them for example to answer nine very basic questions on who god is and what the scripture says you find that 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 a very small percentage of that number actually hold to fundamental beliefs and so when we look at the number of people who identify as evangelical identify as christian protestant catholic Those numbers still appear very encouraging to many of us. But when you start to drill down and say, well, what are your views on abortion and human life? What are your views on the LGBT issue? What are your views uh, on what should be taught in school? And suddenly we find that we are somewhat lonelier than we thought we did. Now, I don't want to overemphasize this because I do think that a tremendous amount of good can be done. And if anything, the fall of Roe v. Wade showed that a despised minority working relentlessly over decades could accomplish something that the progressives and people worldwide truly thought was unthinkable. But I just want us to be realistic because only by having a clear-eyed view of the culture can we make a plan going forward that is actually realistic. And so there's been a lot of articles, as I mentioned, uh, you know, on things like the Daily Wire referred uh, last year to the turning of the tide uh, and the war against wokeism. But I wanted to refer for a moment uh, to a really interesting piece called No, the Revolution Isn't Over, which observes a lot of things that I've observed in, in our work on the streets, in, in communicating with people who do not believe what we believe, and then simply looking at the data on religious belief and the culture. And uh, this, this, this article is written by N.S. Lyons over at his very good Substack newsletter, the upheaval, I actually interviewed N.S. Lyons, which is a pen name. It's not his real name because he's a he's an analyst in Washington, D.C. and has to remain anonymous for that reason. I interviewed him uh, on, on the shifts in our culture over at the European Conservative earlier this year as well. But I want to quote one very significant paragraph uh, that N.S. Lyons writes in this article, No, the revolution isn't over, because I think it's a very important cautionary uh, cautionary point for all of us. And I'm quoting from him directly now. Majorities don't matter. Unfortunately for those dreaming of harnessing a majority anti woke popular will, the truth is that, as statistician and philosopher Nassim Taleb has explained in detail, it's typically not the majority that sets new societal rules, but the most intolerant minority. If the vast majority generally prefers to eat food A instead of food B, but a small minority is absolutely insisting on eating food B and is willing to start chopping off heads of anyone who disagrees and serves food A, and the majority doesn't care enough to get all bloody dying on this particular culinary hill, all restaurants will soon only be serving food B, the new national cuisine. This is especially true if the intolerant minority already holds a disproportionate position of influence within the system, which I think... Uh, that the sexual revolutionaries inarguably do. I've seen this point before, and I've, I've made this point far less eloquently in my own writing in the past, but it does, I think, explain a lot. And majorities don't matter in a lot of ways, and I think Canada is actually a great example, because the majority of people in Canada, Canada being accurately dubbed by the Telegraph as the world's first woke nation, hold views much more similar to mine than to those of Justin Trudeau. Most Canadians do not believe that some women have penises and that some women get pregnant, or some men get pregnant. In fact, millions of Canadians who are recent immigrants from more traditional cultures are not yet on board with same-sex marriage. This is something that has been revealed in polling data put forward by uh, mainstream media sources like the glo- like Global News and CTV. So, how do we explain the fact that the trans activists have every institution? and even supposedly common-sense premiers like Ontario's Doug Ford, you know, gripped firmly by the nethers. The reason is that the majorities don't matter. Uh, the vast majority of normal common-sense people who will never get profiled on the CBC as a non-binary, two-spirited Sufi struggling to make it in the Toronto indie music scene and will have no idea what that even means are just getting on with their lives. They go to work, they struggle to make ends meet, and they hope their kids will have better lives than they do. And while they work they send their kids off to school to be educated by teachers who introduce them to the gender unicorn and children's books about transgender crayons and why the values they've been raised with are bigoted and a generation or two later canada's multicultural patchwork has been poured directly into the woke melting pot with model woke citizens emerging from the public school conveyor belt in endless conformed rows and that is why our western nations have been transformed in just a few short decades and it is also why a few elections and some badly needed parental pushback are no indication that the tide is turning is it that might be but i don't think that this is the time to get optimistic i think this is the time to get committed and resolute because we're going to need a lot sterner stuff than that and a far more clear-eyed analysis of where we actually are i really do applaud The parents who are seeking to fix their public schools. But I also think they should do that while pulling their kids out. Progressive educators cannot be trusted and while mobilizing is important we must also recognize that we need volume and staying power and strategy before we can even hope to halt the woke advance the woke have the entertainment industry they have most political parties and have cowed many others including the conservative party of Canada the woke have the institutions such as academia the idea that a couple of good election cycles the idea that prevailing common sense Uh, the idea that we are going to manage to take back these schools from those school boards when those school boards actually hold a view identical to every other major institution i think is delusional we have to have our own communities that pass on and convey our own values we also have to realize that progressive activists are just as religious as we are and they are far more fanatical often about their religion than we are And in many ways, to our shame, they are more faithful to their religion than we are. I am not trying to provoke pessimism or cynicism here. I have kids, and I have no desire to warm myself by the flames of a burning civilization. I'd much prefer the peace order good government Canada was founded on, or turn to my other citizenship, because I I was born in the U.S., the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness promised by America. But in order to achieve that, we're going to have to fight for the ground we stand on. Raising a family is not going to be easy, and the world that our parents raised us for in most cases no longer exists. But if we commit ourselves to that first and foremost, we can begin our own long march from rooted, thick communities in which our values are passed on to our children and our grandchildren. And I will say at least the company is very good. I want to kind of lay out what I think is happening in Canada at the moment. And of course, things can always change in politics. You can always end up getting a new government. I think you know a lot of people look at Pierre Polyev, the leader of the Conservative Party, and feel hopeful about him. I think the only reason he looks socially conservative in any way right now uh, is due to the fact that the liberals have pushed our euthanasia regime so far, that condemning euthanizing infants now somehow looks brave, despite the fact that you'd think that would take no moral courage whatsoever. But let's start by by stating a few facts about where we are in Canada. And I wanted to do this as the first New Year's podcast just because I think it's so important for us to be clear-eyed. Again, I'm not doing this to be cynical. I'm not doing this to be pessimistic. I'm doing this because I think it's essential for the future of our churches, our communities, our families, that we recognize the threat that we face. Canada's federal government is overtly hostile to Orthodox Christians. Uh, Trudeau has consistently accused those of holding Christian views on issues like abortion and sexuality of being fundamentally un-Canadian. Joe Biden has done the same in the U.S., accused them of being un-American. He has sought to deny government funding to summer jobs programs that will not overtly affirm his personal views on these issues. Trudeau has insisted that those who share the views of the vast majority of people throughout Canada's history are hateful and bigoted. But when 68 churches were damaged or burned down in 2021, with a collective shrug and late-coming muted protests from Canada's progressives, it has become glaringly obvious that apathy towards and disbelief in the religion of Canada's founding has now become overt hostility. Polling even shows that an increasing number of Canadians believe that Christianity is actually damaging for society. Why is that? Because when the average Canadian hears about Christianity, they never hear about the soup kitchens, they never hear about outreach to the homeless, they never hear about the hospitals. What they hear about instead is that some Christian institution, some college, some university, some school is still not on board with the LGBT agenda and that this is a problem. I've thought for some time now that intolerance towards Christians in Canada is likely to grow. The vicious protests at the Toronto Public Library in 2019, I think, were a particular wake-up call. Activists raged outside the library for hours and even called for violence because an event featuring a pro-abortion pro-gay feminist speaker named Megan Murphy had been allowed to proceed. Murphy, keep in mind, agreed with progressives on everything except for the idea that biological men identifying as women should be allowed in female-only spaces. For that, the mob bayed for her head. If they hate her that much, I ask you, can you imagine how much they hate us? And furthermore, what stands between that mob and what they want? Our federal politicians Provincial legislatures? The courts? The answer, of course, is pretty much nobody. Canada's Conservatives, with a few notable exceptions, are eager to prove their loyalty to the LGBT movement and unlikely to be reliable allies. Again, Pierre Polyev was the freedom candidate, but he's been a reliable vote for every single thing the LGBT movement has asked for, including the conversion therapy ban that effectively bans some pastoral and parental conversations. I think it's notable during his victory speech when he procured the leadership, he thanked his father and his father's gay partner since his father left his mother for another man. You can't expect somebody like Pierre with a background like that and a voting record such as the one that he has to be an ally on the issues that will threaten Canada's Christian schools and churches. Canada's media only pays attention to Christians when conflict with the LGBT movement or abortion industry erupts, and post-Christian columnists just want to spend all their time insisting that Canada's Christians aren't real Christians. Now, considering the fact that only... 11% 11% of Canadians participate in any form of a religious service regularly, and that includes, by the way, Sikh temples, mosques, synagogues, and churches. What are the coming years likely to bring? In a recent essay for First Things, Carl Truman, one of our post-Christian era's most trenchant observers, for those interested, I, I actually reviewed his most recent book, Strange New World, for the European Conservative recently, He noted that Christian churches, quote, face an unprecedented challenge due to the collapse of the moral vision that made them coherent entities. The churches, which have thus far escaped the wrath of secular progressive elites, he noted, are those who have burned a pinch of incense, or in many cases, several handfuls, and attempted to reconcile themselves to a new moral order by suddenly discovering that Christianity permits and endorses what it had previously called morally abominable it is important to note that we are just entering the post-Christian age and that things are likely to get a whole lot worse. Truman predicts that the chasm between the post-Christian churches and those that cling to Christian orthodoxies on life and sexuality are going to grow. I actually noted this as well in my 2016 book, The Culture War, where I noted that post-Christian churches are now held up as an example by the sexual revolutionaries as what re- This is what real Christianity looks like. God is love. They are showing love. And thus, these fake Christians are being used to judge those who still cling to what the Scripture teaches. Here's what Truman said, quote, I would anticipate that within five years, we will witness a significant disruption across all major representatives of the Christian faith. The fault lines will run between those who find a way to accommodate to the world's terms of good citizenship and those whose fidelity to Christ will lead to varying degrees of internal exile within this earthly city. The former will ultimately accept the collapse of biblical anthropology, repudiating its implications for sexual morality, for human identity, and for addressing the various socially constructed problems we now face, such as those of race and gender. The latter will maintain Christian teaching and be decried as being at best naive and at worst bigoted. So what does that mean in practical terms? Now it's impossible to know, of course, but I think that we need to look at a few things. Christian commentators of all stripes have now been arguing for several decades that the appropriate response to the rise of the secular Leviathan is going to be withdrawal. Rod Dreher famously argued that all is lost and the Benedict Option was our only chance of survival. But I think we can make a few reasonable predictions based on the direction here in Canada uh, that we are actually heading in. First, I think that Christian schools which receive government funding will likely be forced to either compromise on their convictions or forego funding. Will that happen this year? No, probably not this year, but I think this is coming and can be depended on. Much of the Catholic school system has already gone this way. In Ontario this year, it was more controversial for a Catholic school not to fly LGBT flags than it was for them to do so. In Alberta, more than 20 Christian schools would have faced a government shutdown if the New Democrats had won re-election. Christian schools in some provinces still receive government funding for the moment, but I think it's only a matter of time before that changes. We see this unfolding in the Netherlands right now, where there is relentless government and activist scrutiny surrounding teachings on LGBT issues and constant pressure to conform. Private school education is already expensive in Canada, and I think Christian families and Christian communities should plan for that to get worse. Second, it will become increasingly difficult for Christians to function in elite Professions. This has been made worse by the staggering rise of assisted suicide and the expansion of the suicide regime. This is already true in the medical profession, where practitioners are under increasing pressure to refer for assisted suicide, abortion, or birth control. Organizations such as the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada and others are constantly lobbying for medical prof- professionals who refuse to cooperate with acts that violate their conscience to be forced from the profession. And I believe that in the absence of a collective cultural understanding of conscience, there is good reason to think that such efforts will be effective in persuading people People of conscience to pursue other careers, or as we've seen in the last few years, to decamp to the United States or elsewhere. This is a shame because, with the trickle of euthanasia horror stories turning into a torrent, we do need principled medical professionals now more than ever. Medical professionals that keep us safe and that can be depended on. Third, we will see an exodus from many churches as the cost of being Christian continues, concurrent with the ongoing collapse of Canada's mainline denominations. At current rates, the Anglican Church will be out of members by 2040, and Michael Korn will have to shut off the lights. Even in conservative Christian circles, the rise of the digital age has meant that the upcoming generation has been largely catechized by the culture rather than the churches, and devices like smartphones have given children from Christian homes the opportunity to participate in mainstream culture from early ages for the first time, just as mainstream culture has gone from post-Christian to anti-Christian. With the cultural influence of Christianity effectively dead, and post-Christian culture offering young people the panoply of pornographic pleasures found in Pandora's box, many are going to find it simpler to walk away. We're already starting to see this among the young. Most universities are also institutions of indoctrination, and the peer pressure to abandon unpopular orthodoxies, I believe, will continue to grow. Fourth, churches and other religious institutions that refuse to bend the knee will in the coming years lose their tax-exempt status at some point. Canadian LGBT activists have been making this case for years, they have in the US and elsewhere as well, and it is only a matter of time before the idea catches on, or, more likely, a progressive politician decides that the time is just right. I suspect that a key reason this has not been yet discussed is the awkward fact that many non-Christian institutions hold similar positions on marriage, sexuality, and abortion. Institutions like mosques and synagogues and temples that our politicians would prefer to leave alone. We are only repudiating our own heritage. We are pretending that these other traditions simply do not say what they say. That said, I have no doubt that a way to target churches specifically will be worked out. LGBT activists are already asking why the government is, quote, rewarding bigotry by awarding tax-exempt status to the churches with a traditional view of sexuality, and LGBT activists are already publicizing sermons they disagree with as evidence of hatred. The churches and the state are on a collision course, and it really isn't hard to see how this is going to end. So what should we do? Carl Truman offers some powerful advice in the aforementioned essay including being deeply rooted in doctrine and scripture, rejecting the postmodern worship practices that have come with our childish age, and putting our own lives in perspective before God. We must work to defend our communities and shape the minds of our children while also seeking to love our neighbors. Canada is post-Christian, but Christians in Canada are thus far facing social and political marginalization rather than persecution. There will be a cost for Christian beliefs in the coming years, both social and financial, and we should use this time to prepare for what might come and what is likely to come. We should do that by strengthening our communities, by doubling down on education, by teaching our young people how to respond to these things, by showing them the value of these communities and the despair of the alternatives. In the U.S., it's somewhat different. Because in the U.S., we see 50 different countries in one country, and the state, state of affairs is much different in Mississippi than it is in California. It's much different in Alabama than it is in Maine. You have some areas where conservative values still hold sway and other areas where they are virtually extinct. And so in the U.S., as we see with the abortion debate, as we see with the parental rights debate, as we see with the gender ideology debate, local politics still has the potential to create tremendous change, because on the state level there are still governors, there are still politicians who openly proclaim that they are Christian and that they are willing to double down on these things, and of course, politicians who are willing to nominate the right judges, politicians who are willing to bank their careers on issues like the pro-life issue, have resulted in 2022, despite the disappointment midterm results in being a tremendously encouraging year so over the next year uh, at my blog on life news.com and here on the podcast what i want to do is to keep everyone apprised of the cultural developments that i think are important i think that's very important for us to remain aware of what's going on i think it's important for us to understand what cultural influences f- threaten our families. And I think it's very important for us to recognize that nothing we have can be taken for granted, that all of it can be lost, and that there is a fundamental difference between a culture with Christian assumptions, a culture that is post-Christian but neutral, and the anti-Christian culture that we are entering. Our kids will not be told that Christianity is benign. They won't even be told that it's irrelevant. They are going to be told that it is wicked They are going to be told that Christianity is the reason for so much of the suffering of the preceding centuries. They are going to be told that Christianity is a club that is used to hurt those who identify different and those who choose a different sexuality. They are going to be told that to be a Christian is to hold to a despised set of beliefs that makes them fundamentally antisocial. And for many, many of them, that's going to be tremendously persuasive. Those that are on social media for the entire month of June are going to see nonstop LGBT advertising on Instagram, on TikTok, even on Facebook. They are going to be constantly subject to a torrent of messages explaining to them why the worldview that their parents brought them up with is hateful. And this is something that we need to be preparing ourselves for. Education is one tool in that regard. Preparing ourselves, of course, is essential. And so, I hope that the podcast in 2022 was helpful. I hope it will also be helpful in 2023. I'd like to thank everybody who's listened along so far. I really do appreciate the fact that you've listened. I hope that we're all in this together when it comes to finding ways to deal with our post-Christian culture. And I hope you'll join us again next week. My name is Jonathan Van Maren. If you want to get previous episodes of this podcast or subscribe to hear the upcoming episodes please head to lifesightnews.com, click on the podcast tab you can get our podcast wherever you get your content thank you so much for listening